chapter 13. As we continue and also begin to wind down and move towards the end of the book, I do have thoughts for where we're going. I will keep them to myself for now. I change my mind a lot. I'm very indecisive, unstable. Romans chapter 13. If anybody needs a Bible, just uh, lift up a hand and um, the ushers will... Are there any ushers here? Well, if you don't have a Bible, you're out of luck tonight. (laughs) Oh, there is. (laughs) Okay, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. You can get a Bible tonight here. There's one up in the front. Actually, you can just pass, pass it down. There's one right. Perfect. Romans chapter 13... We're going to do the whole chapter, but let's just read the first seven verses. Paul says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon them that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For this cause pay ye tribute or taxes also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute or taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. In our previous few studies, as we looked at chapter 12 of this book of Romans, Paul essentially began taking us through this section of the book on Christian living, or living the Christian life. And and chapter 12 began this. Essentially, the way to live for God begins in the mind. That we're to be people that willingly, that we are willing before God as we surrender our lives to Him, to change the way that we think. The way we think about life, as opposed to the way we used to before we knew Christ. The way we think about ourselves, as opposed to the way we used to think about ourselves. And the way that we think about others, and relating to others. And Paul is challenging us to change the way that we think. And as we do that, it will automatically spill over into other areas of our lives as well. As we get into chapter 13, Paul is now going to challenge us about the way that the Christian operates within society. How does a Christian operate within uh, a society that is essentially non-Christian or godless, if you would? And he begins in these first seven verses by challenging us concerning our relationship to human government. How do we as Christians relate to human government? Well, he tells us right there in the first verse that human government is ordained of God. That that even the human government, even the godless government, that no matter what the, 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 the spectrum of it is or the scope or what it looks like, 
Paul is telling us that regardless of that, that it's ordained of God, that he is the one who is sovereign even over that. Now, it was not so from the beginning. When God first made man upon the earth, he was created to be governed by God. Adam was not created with the capacity of knowing good and evil. He would look to the Lord to be his governor, to give him direction and instruction. He would walk with God in the cool of the day, and God would instruct and lead Adam in the way that he would go. And that was the way that God intended man to dwell and to live, to be governed by him. But God gave Adam, because love must do this, a choice. He didn't demand that Adam submit eternally to God's leading in his life. But he did place there in the garden a tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That if Adam would so choose that he had that capacity, that he could partake of that tree and thus bring the governing of himself out of the hand of God and place it in his own responsibility. And of course, we know the story. Adam and Eve, they partook of that. They were seduced, they were tempted, and they sinned. And God, being the gentleman that he is, didn't force himself any longer to be the governor over their lives, but rather, he left it in their hand. And as representatives of the human race, now, man is governed by man. We are self-governed. And God requires of us that we submit to human government. He tells us that we're to do that. Now, when God called Jacob, when God was forming this nation of Israel and called Abraham out and Abraham gave birth to Isaac and then Isaac to Jacob, as God was establishing his covenant with Jacob, well, you know the story, he was out one night and he was going through a particular struggle and he had been away and he was moving back and it was, it was the night before a great conflict. And it tells us that a man met him there in the wilderness as he was traveling. And that Jacob wrestled all night long with this man. It was none other than Jesus himself. It was the Lord wrestling with Jacob there. And and the conclusion of the matter is that Jacob held on when the sun was coming up. And the man, the Lord, said, it's time for me to go. And Jacob clung to him and said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And the blessing came, the Lord touched his leg, and the the muscle shrank, and he was forever crippled. He would need a cane for the rest of his life, but it was a blessing. Because Jesus looked at Jacob at that time, and he said, your name is no longer Jacob, heel catcher, conniver. But your name is Israel, which means governed by God. That God blessed Jacob. By bringing him into a place where, again, he would be governed by God, where God would lead his life, where God would give him direction and instruction and inspiration, and that Jacob would be led by the Lord, governed by God. Now, in Christ, you and I, we have that same blessing. In a sense, we are, our name is changed to Israel in the sense, not that we are part of Israel nationally, but we are a part of Israel spiritually in that we are brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We have called upon the name of the Lord, as Paul said earlier in the book of Romans. We have confessed with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. That means Lord, not just curious in generic terms, but he is Lord of our lives personally. 
And thus we are brought into this place where we are now to be governed by God. We're to be in submission to him and then led by and ruled over from him that we get our direction. We take our cues. We are governed by God. We are Christians. That's what we are. That's what we're to do. Now, in that, there are many that have taken the position that, well, I am in submission to the highest power. I am led by the Lord, and therefore, I'm not bound by or restricted under the laws of man. That I am no longer to be submissive to human government because I am submitted to a higher power, and thus, they ignore the principles and the edict of human government. Because, well, I'm under the edict and lordship of Christ. Well, that's good, but it's not right. Because the Bible tells us that we're to submit to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Paul is telling us here again that let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, for the powers that be are ordained of God. Now, we are to be in submission to earthly governors, to earthly rulers. We're we're not to say, no, I can rebel against earthly authority because I'm under heaven's authority. We're not to do that. But we do have an advantage. We do have an edge over the rest of the world. Why? What, What is that edge? It's that we know as Christians as those that are governed by God, submitted to Christ in relationship with our Heavenly Father, we know, we have the knowledge that He is sovereign over those earthly governments. So in our submission to those things, though we want to kick against it naturally, though it's in opposition to the principles of God most often, Yet we can do it because we know that God is yet sovereign over those things. You say, well, wait a minute. I I hear what you're saying, but you're saying that from a pulpit in the United States of America. And and things are pretty good here. You know, we we have the freedom to be doing this. And we have pretty much the the basic human rights, though they be eroding quickly. You know, well, we have them. This is the United States of America. And that's fine. But that's not the case everywhere else in the world. I mean, didn't you ever read about Mussolini? Didn't you ever read about Adolf Hitler? Didn't you ever read about Barack? Oh, wait, no, sorry. (laughs) Or Hillary. You know, don't you know about these these rulers? Don't you know about these despots? Don't you understand what it's like in other places of the world? Well, listen, Christian. What does God mean when he says to submit to every ordinance of man? Well, let me ask you, who was the ruler in the time when Paul wrote this? It was Caesar, the very man that would take off his head. It was Caesar, the man who would ride through his garden in a fit of insanity, burning Christians like human candles and laughing hysterically. And it was under that rulership that Paul would write these words and say, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, because there is no power. There is no government that is not ordained of God. You say, wait a minute. How can you say that a despot government is ordained of God? How does that fit? It doesn't compute within my mind. In Luke chapter 2, the first six verses, the story is of the birth of Christ. And it tells us there that it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus 
that all the world should be taxed. Now, this is one of the few times in world history that there was one man who was sovereign over most of the the world. This man, Caesar Augustus, was the most powerful man in the world. And he was somewhat of a despot. He was an emperor. He was a dictator. And he was a tyrant in many ways to certain people. And this man, in the days that Christ should be born, was the governor, and he put forth a decree that the world should be taxed. And it said that this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David. To be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. Now, Caesar, he was the most powerful man in the world. The tax that he issued forth coming into his heart was no other than the pomp and pride of a man who had the authority to tax the whole world. I'm going to flex my political muscles, Caesar was saying. I'm going to show the world who's sovereign, who's in control, and I'm going to cause that they're all inconvenienced and emptied of pocket because they're going to submit to this tax that I'm issuing forth in my pomp, in my pride. That's what Augustus was saying. The effect of this power, this pomp, and this pride that Caesar was inflicting upon the people, well, it was nothing more than tyranny. It was inconvenience. I mean, look at how it affected Joseph and Mary, who were in Nazareth, 70 miles from Bethlehem. They couldn't just go and get a ticket for a Greyhound bus, or hop in a limo, or take the car and drive 70 miles down the highway. They didn't have that convenience, but rather they would have to saddle donkey. They would have to perhaps load a a camel and bring much provision with them being in the circumstances that they were under. What inconvenience, what tyranny, how is it that God, how could God allow, how could God be over such a government? Wait a minute, wait a minute. 700 years before Caesar came on the scene, before his power and his pride and his pomp could move him to make this task, God said something. Through the prophet Micah, in the fifth chapter, the second verse, he said, But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, thou, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been of old from everlasting. Who is that speaking of? Jesus God, the Father, saying that it would be from Bethlehem that Jesus would come. But wait a minute. Mary was great with child, and she wasn't in Bethlehem. Mary was in Nazareth. That was where Joseph was. That's where they lived. That's where their home was. That's where the baby was to be born. But wait. This most powerful, most prideful, pompous king? Well, how was God going to get Joseph and Mary into Bethlehem, 70 miles from where they were at this stage in their pregnancy. Oh, simply by moving the heart of this powerful, pompous, prideful king to issue forth a tax. With the earmark that everybody has to go to their own town to be counted for it. 
And thus God showing his power and his sovereignty over even the most despotic of rulers moved Joseph and Mary into the very place that they would be for the fulfillment of prophecy perfectly. And that is the point that Paul is making here in Romans chapter 13 is that the powers that be are ordained of God. That even the worst of earthly rulers are all playing into God's purpose for planet earth. That there is nothing that happens in the kingdom of men that God is not sovereign over and in control of. In Daniel chapter 4, another time when there was a king with as much power as Caesar, in fact, even greater, it was King Nebuchadnezzar. In these short four verses, Daniel chapter 4, verse 28 through 32, it says that all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. That at the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon, and the king spoke and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built? For the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty. And while the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. And they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and he giveth it to whomsoever he will. That God is sovereign over human government. That it isn't the pomp and the pride of their kingdoms, their policies, and their politics. It's governed from their self-will and their covetous pride. Rather, it's God Almighty whose purposes will be served on planet Earth. And he says to us that we're to be in submission to earthly governments for his sake. That as citizens of heaven and those that are ruled and governed by Christ, we honor and glorify him by being in submission to the laws and edicts of men. Now, of course, we all know that's as long as it doesn't violate God's law. Daniel didn't bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's image. Peter and John didn't stop preaching when the law came forth that it was against the law to do so. God's law always trumps man's law, but man's law always is sustained in God's court otherwise. Amen? God calls us to be in this submission. Now, because God's in control of these things, verse 2 tells us, That to be in resistance to human government is to be in rebellion against God. Verse 2, it says, Whomsoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. There is a type of person in the world, and unfortunately there's a type of the same person in the church, that hate government. They're, they're, They're suspicious, maybe rightfully, but they take it to the next level and they actually find themselves in somewhat of a rebellious type of mindset towards human government. Kind of the rebels, if you would. But the Bible condemns this type of behavior. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 10, talks about those that despise government and it speaks of them in unfavorable light. Jude echoes the same sentiment in his letter in verse 8. And he says, says similar things, that they despise dominion, that there are a type of people that will call themselves Christians, 
but yet they deny the Lord in this very thing and that they're seeking to overthrow some hum- human government in this false Christianity. And Paul is telling us here that it is not of the Lord, that they receive to themselves damnation. You say, well, you know, where, where, what's what gives? Because it's true that human governments are despotic and, and wicked many times. So where do we find our solace as Christians? Well, verses 3 through 5 tell us that in submission, you'll find solace. He says, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then be afraid of that power? Do that which is good, and you shall have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Now I was driving down the Taconic State Parkway this morning, as is my daily custom. And I know the rules on the Taconic State Parkway. I used to drive down 684 and there's a different set of rules on 684. But I know the rules on the Taconic Parkway. So I was obediently, as my Christian faith demands, driving down the Taconic State Parkway at a reasonable speed that you don't get in trouble for going. <laughs> and someone blew by. You know, I don't know how fast they were going, but they blew by and it was before the sun came up. And of course, there was uh, a car parked under the bridge there when they blew right by, and I, I knew they had gotten it. So the lights went on, you know, and this whole thing happened, you know. Now, I, I bring this up because I have been both cars. I have been both the car in the right lane doing what I'm supposed to do, and I have also been the car in the left lane who blows by and sees that car parked under the bridge at that time, and I have felt the feeling of being in both cars. So being in the right lane this morning, obediently doing what I was supposed to be doing, I saw the car there parked under the bridge, and there was a perfect peace within my heart. I didn't have that, you know, feeling, you know, where every hair on your body and your heart stops for a minute, and, you know, you need a defibrillator, and and I didn't have that. It was just a perfect, peaceful, like, oh, wow, look, there's a car parked under the bridge, just driving along, listening to Christian radio. You know, thinking about Christian things. You know, all this going on. Whereas the guy in the car there, and I've been the guy in the car there, is going, ah, you know, and he knows. And immediately, you know, the turn signal goes on, and you start, oh, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? I'm going to have things ready, and, ah, you know, and this whole thing happens. It's exactly the point that Paul is making here. He's saying, for the rulers are not a terror to good works. If you're doing what you're supposed to do, if you're walking orderly according to the rules then there'll be a perfect peace within your heart about what's going on in the government. It doesn't affect you because you're doing it the God's way. You're in submission to Him. You're trusting in His sovereignty that He knows what's going on. But if you're in rebellion, and if you're constantly pushing against, kicking against those things, that the natural result of that is that there's going to be a lack of peace within your heart. You're going to have a resistance mentally towards authority. When you see that police car there or a person in uniform that you're something will happen inside there's an agitation and anxiousness that comes over you paul says the solution to that is just do what's right they're not a terror unto good works but unto evil if you just do what's right you'll have praise of them it was amazing what happened when i became a christian before i was a christian hated hated police despised them when i would see one coming my heart would be filled with contempt But all of a sudden, once I got saved, I saw them as my friends. I would see them as real people and just strike up conversations, no longer terrified by them, not seeing them as a badge and authority, but seeing them as people with a job. Because 
I'm on your team. I'm one of you. You know, I want what's right. I want order in society. This is normal. And my whole attitude was flipped around. That's what Paul is encouraging here, that there's solace and submission. And he says, therefore, and this is the worst part, as where I go from preaching to meddling, verse 6. He says, pay your taxes. <laughs> no, Paul. Okay, I can do the submission thing. I can do it. I can, I'll obey. I'll go the speed limit, but not taxes. It's very fitting, isn't it? You heard the news that the expiration of the tax cuts and all. He says, well, hey, for this cause, pay ye taxes also. For they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. That's the word of God. That's what he has called us to do. And we see that in the life of Christ. But we don't have more time for that, so let's move on. <laughs> Why are you laughing? The next area where Paul speaks to us tonight is of concerning being Christians within society is our relationship, not just with human government, but now with our human neighbors. In verse 8, he goes on and he says this. He says, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. How do we relate? to our human neighbors, to the people that we interact with in society? Well, he begins by saying, first of all, he says, be indebted to no one. Now, some have taken this to mean that it is wrong for Christians to have any form of debt. That for you to, you know, mortgage a house or to take out a loan in order to purchase a car or to do things that you have to do, that it is unchristian or ungodly because the Bible says to be indebted to no man. Well, I have two problems with that. First of all, people buy things all the time. We buy groceries that we need that we don't maybe use right away or we do things. Well, people buy money too. That's what interest is. And basically, you don't owe anybody anything until you're late. <laughs> you know, nobody, they never call and say, hey, you owe us money. It's just, hey, I, I bought money from you to buy this house and I'm paying for it as I go, you know, and this kind of a thing. And, and so I don't owe you something until I've gone overboard. At that point where now I cannot pay, now I'm in trouble because now I'm indebted in, in some way. That's my first problem with that. The second problem I have with it is that it's completely out of context. The context of what Paul is talking about here has nothing to do with debt financially. It's debt in terms of iniquity, terms of sin. Do you remember the Lord when he was teaching his disciples how to pray in the Sermon on the Mount? Remember they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And, and, and Jesus said, when you pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven. You know, we all know that. We're brought up saying it in this country. You know, We know that. And one of the things that he said that they were to say was, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Or you may have it in your translation, forgive our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. It's the same thing. That's what Paul is talking about here. 
He's not talking about financial debt because it doesn't flow in the context of anything at all. He's talking about our sin debt, the sinful debts that come up and that are against us here. Look at what he says again. He says, Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, and then he lists all of these things. You know, he he uses that in the context of this debt that we're to forgive. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. Because something happens when you sin against someone or when somebody sins against you. In a sense, they are, or you are, depending on who's doing the sinning, something is being taken away. If someone commits adultery, as Paul uses as his first example there in verse 9, when he says, thou shalt not commit adultery. When a person commits adultery, they are going into a situation of sin, but in so doing it, they are taking something away from a multitude of people. They are robbing life from their children and from their families. They're destroying the spouse that they made a covenant and a promise to in the day that they were wedded, taking something very seriously out from that person and ripping them apart mentally and emotionally in a way that they'll never recover from fully. Tearing apart another marriage or another potential marriage in the process, in the act of that very adultery, taking something away from the other person's spouse in the other person's family. And also putting a dent in the solidarity of society by partaking in such a behavior. There is an incredible amount of debt that is incurred when someone commits adultery. An unpayable, irreparable amount of debt is incurred through the sin of adultery. Take the second example that Paul says there when he says, Thou shalt not kill. When you kill someone, an act of manslaughter or an act of homicide, first of all, you're taking life from that person. Life that man can't create. Life that comes from the breath of God. At the same time, you're also robbing a family of a member. You're robbing future generations of a father. You're robbing future generations of life, potentially. You're taking something. You're incurring a debt that cannot be repaid when you kill. Take the third example, thou shalt not steal. Well, we understand stealing. To take something, it's the most simple illustration and analogy you can have. Because if you take something of intrinsic value, then obviously you've caused a debt. You owe something in exchange for that because you've taken it away. There's a debt that is made from that. The next, he says, thou shalt not bear false witness. To be dishonest or to lie or to give misinformation with our words. You take something away from people when you do that. You know, you know, Jesus, you remember when he was being accused by the Pharisees and brought before Pilate, and it says that they bore false witness against Jesus. They cried out and they said, this man claimed that he would destroy the temple and in three days build it again. Wait a minute. Didn't Jesus say that? Was that really a lie? I mean, they weren't really lying. Jesus really did say that. No, no, listen. It was the right information but the wrong implication and the bible called it false witness you ever do that i've done it well he said you know and then you tell them what they said but you tell them out of context and you're giving the right information but the wrong implication it's false witness when you lie like that you're taking something away you're assassinating somebody's character 
you're bringing upon someone, you know, just trouble and hurt. It's a debt, a sin debt that's being there. And then finally, coveting. He says, thou shalt not covet. To covet is to criminalize someone else's fortune. Well, why do you deserve that? You know, why don't I get that? And it's breaking down the relationship because of what someone else has or an advantage that someone else has that you perhaps don't for whatever reason at this season. And it's a breaking of that that thing. And there's a debt that is incurred. And what he's saying here is for us that we should owe man, no man anything. That, that the law that we should live by should be the law of love. And that the result of that is that uh, we're not going to commit adultery. We're not going to be killing people or assassinating someone's character with our words. Or stealing or bearing false witness or coveting or any other commandment. That love will be the keep. That we're supposed to keep a very small tab with people. We shouldn't be incurring debt with others. But isn't it interesting that Jesus also said in his prayer that as we pray, that we're to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That the other half of that is that we're to let go of those that are indebted to us. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had my share of things that people have done to me throughout the years of my life that I can honestly look them in the face and say, you've taken something from me. What you did to me through what you did has taken something away from me. That I have been adversely affected by what you've done. There are emotional scars and things in my life that are directly attributed to what you did for me. And the Lord says that we're to release those debts. What does it feel like for you when you get out of financial debt? When you make that last car payment? Paying off a mortgage? Finally making up that you know, amount that you borrowed and paying it off. What does it feel like? It's kind of like, yes, you know, you just kind of feel free. You know, all of a sudden the shackles are gone and, and you're done. You know, you're, you feel like this feeling of freedom. And it's the very same thing that God is talking about, how we're to deal with sin, whether it be something that we do or something that is done to us, that we're to release those debts. We're to owe no man anything and we're not to hold the debt in someone else's behalf. I think there's a lot of us, and I was challenged by this myself, that hold debt on people. That we have an invisible bankroll that we keep hidden within our heart of the things that people have done to us. And from time to time, just for comfort, we'll pull it out and we'll begin to think about, well, I'm like this because they did that to me. Or this situation that I'm in right now is the direct result of what that person did or in that situation. And the Lord says, let it go. In the same way that if somebody owed you $1,000 and you knew they couldn't pay, and every time you saw them, they kind of looked at you a little funny because they know they owe you $1,000. And you kind of are around them and you're trying to be happy, but in your heart, you know they owe you $1,000. And it's kind of like this elephant in the room of this $1,000. When are you going to get, I mean, that person owes me $1,000. I owe him $1,000. I can't pay the $1,000. But listen, what happens on the day when you go to that person and you say, you know what, I know that you owe me $1,000. I just want you to know I don't want it. It's f completely forgiven. Just, it, it, it just, it's from the Lord. I don't want that $1,000. It's completely over with. Don't ever think of it again. It's, it's, a, it's a done deal. What happens? That person feels like, ah, free. And you know what happens to you? You stop thinking about it too. You stop worrying about it. It's over. You've let it go. You've done it. That's what the Lord tells us to do with sin. 
The person that's burned you the worst, the person that you think of in your mind that comes up the most as has really taken something from you, I would challenge you to pray about in your mind, in your heart, and maybe with your voice and your actions, going to that person and saying, listen, I'm not saying this for you, I'm saying it for me, but I feel like you've taken something from me, and I forgive you. I release you of that debt. I release that. I forgive what you did to me. Though I feel like, you, maybe you don't, but I feel, and I'm just telling you I forgive you. I'll tell you what will happen is that you'll feel liberated. You'll feel like you can rebuild a relationship with that person. At least you can feel like you can be at peace with them. That's what the Lord challenges us to do. Oh, no man, anything but to love one another. Isn't it interesting that in verse 10 it says that love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law? There were two tables of the commandments. The first four concerned man's relationship with God. The second four, or six rather, ten commandments, right? Four and six is ten. The last six were concerning man's relationship with man. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest of all the commandments? He said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. And he said, the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, you will automatically fulfill the first four commandments. If you love the Lord, you're not going to have false God. You're not going to dishonor him with idols. You're going to love him and be devoted to him, and therefore you'll be fulfilling the law. If you love your neighbor as you love yourself, you don't have to love him more. But as much as you love yourself, well, hey, would you steal from yourself? Would you kill yourself? Would you covet? Do you covet yourself? I mean, no, we don't do those things because obviously we're looking out for our own best interest. And if we love our neighbor the way we love ourselves, then we're automatically going to fulfill the last six commandments. Therefore, Paul is saying that love is the fulfillment of the law. That's why Jesus said that the second is like it. But Jesus added this statement. He said, on these two hang all the law and the prophets. That on these two commandments, Matthew twenty two forty, hang all the law and the prophets. Because Jesus, as he hung upon the cross, was the fulfillment of the law perfectly. The demonstration of what it meant to love God and be in submission to him. And the demonstration of what it was to love man. And what did the love of Christ towards man drive him to do? But to die. He let his creation kill him for the sake of demonstrating true love. It's the cross that we're challenged to take up. How, what is our relationship towards human neighbors? Is that we're to love them. We're to love them by not sinning against them and forgiving them when they sin against us and taking up our cross and treating them as Jesus treated us. And then finally in verses 11 through 14, he talks about our relationship towards human passions. He says, And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. 
concerning our relationship to our own human passions, which can be our worst enemy, can't they? He says that there are three things that will trip you up in your pursuit of God. Your pursuit of holiness, your pursuit of heaven. This course, this narrow road that they're on, three things will trip you up. First of all, pleasure carnally. He says that we're not to be giving ourselves, in verse 13, he says, to rioting and drunkenness. That is, bar hopping, club going, partying, you know, living that life of the nightlife, if you would, of going out and hanging out in that scene, joining ourselves to the world's darkness in that way, and living, giving ourselves to a pursuit of that type of pleasure. He says that will trip you up in your pursuit of holiness and the pursuit of God. The second thing he says will trip us up is lust sexually. He says not in chambering and wantonness. Chambering means going from bedroom to bedroom. Being the type of person that is loose sexually, that gives themselves to sexual passions and sexual pleasures, or holds loose convictions in their Christianity concerning this arena of sexuality. He says that will trip you up. It will take you down. When the Bible talks about one man and one woman, a monogamous relationship, it is not talking about one at a time. It's talking about... (laughs) You're laughing, but that's what people think. Oh, well, it's one at a time. I, I never cheat on my boyfriend. No, but how many boyfriends have you had? How many girlfriends have you had? It's chambering. It's wantonness. It's living for your lust. It's chasing after your passions. It's not living a lifestyle that's pleasing to the Lord. And you're certainly not helping your Christianity or building your kingdom eternally. You're tearing yourself apart physically, morally, and spiritually. Beware of that. It will trip you up, Paul says. Beware of this sexual lust that can control you. And then finally, he talks about coveting materially. He says, not in strife and envying. Many people in the world give themselves to striving to attain things because they're envying what someone else has. We live in a generation where we buy things that we can't afford with money that we don't have to impress people that we don't like. It's just the way things are now. And it's insanity. Because we're not investing in anything eternally and we don't get to keep anything presently. It's all just a facade. It's all fake. It's all for nothing. I work in the city and I work on these buildings you wouldn't believe. These these little dwelling places that are just the most luxurious things you could ever imagine. Marble hallways, just the most beautifully ornate, you know, places. And about... A week ago, I was, you know, reading in the morning devotions, and I was reading the book of Revelation. I'm kind of going through it with the kids, you know, and, and reading it, refreshing and all that. And I was reading it on my own in the morning. I was in chapter 18 uh, there, and, and it's talking about the fall of Babylon, the great city that exalts itself against God. And in verse 2 of Revelation 18, it says that Babylon the great is fallen and has become the habitation of devils, and a hold or a prison of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. That the city, these glamorous cities that exalt themselves against God, he's saying that they became a prison. They become a cage. And as I read that, it immediately flashed into my mind this building, this brand new, beautiful building that I'm working on. Where you, if you, if 
if you can attain to it. If you can build your stature and your bank account and your income to the level that is required. For $3,600 a month, you could be the proud owner of a 600 square foot box. $3,600 a month. And, And as I read Revelation 18 and considered in my mind these boxes that we're building, it hit me. I'm in the prison ministry. Because I'm building these cages that people are literally signing up to chain themselves to. I mean, $3,600 a month. And people are going, oh, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. I'm going to move it. I'm going to have myself a little place on Amsterdam Avenue. Yep, little flat, 600 square feet. $3,600. It's a prison. It's a cage. Because what you discover is that once you finally come up with the amount, the sum, you sign the lease, you're in there, you think that you own it, but you find that it owns you. Because now you have to really spin your wheels in order to sustain that and maintain it. And rather than possessing the thing that you're seeking to possess, you find that you are possessed by it. You're a prisoner to it. You're chained to it. How many times do we even fall into that trap in our own lives? through the things that we desire. Paul says you will be tripped up in your pursuit of eternity if you give yourself to the desire for coveting material things. He's saying these things are snares. They will trip you up. They will take you down. You'll find yourself falling. If you give yourself to pleasure carnally, to lust sexually, or to coveting materially, you'll regret it. It will come back and it will bite you. You'll find yourself imprisoned by inanimate objects. But he offers two solutions for us as we close. How do we guard ourselves against these things that are constantly vying for our affections, seeking constantly to trip us up? The first thing he tells us is to keep eternity in perspective. Verse 11, he says, And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. In lieu of the fact that we are so close, that it could be any moment that we hear the trumpet sound. Listen, are you ready, Christian? Are you ready if even right now, or perhaps later on this evening when you're by yourself, perhaps there's a trumpet sound? And perhaps, and again, the Bible says, of course, that we'll be translated. It'll be twinkling of an eye. But let me ask you, if it was so that there was a trumpet sound and automatically in front of you there appeared a door and it was up to you to walk through it, what would be the emotion in your mind? Oh, is this a vision? Is this a dream? What if I wait a second? What happened? What would happen in your heart? What would happen in your mind? Listen, Christian, this is real. We're talking about heaven. We're talking about eternity here. Paul is saying that perspective will keep you on the right path. Don't lose sight of where you're headed. This is not our home. This is a facade. This is the sub-reality. The reality is coming. And it's glorious. Paul says, consider, keep these things in view. Are you ready? And then the other thing he tells us to do to keep us on this path that we're called on to is in verse 14. He says, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. The other way to keep yourself from falling into these pitfalls of spiritual destruction is, he says, to put on Jesus Christ. What does that mean? 
Does that mean that I slap a Christian bumper sticker on my car? Put on a Christian t-shirt? I'm putting on Jesus. You know, I'm just, I'm putting on my Christianity. Listen, I I know you're laughing because you think I'm going to say no, but it kind of is. Because there's a lot of people that kind of are closet Christians, if you would. They come to church, they raise their hands, they read their Bibles, but when they go out there into their workplace or into society, they they don't want it to be known. They don't want people to really see and know that they are followers of Christ or Jesus freaks. They kind of hide behind, you know, a, a righteous facade. They do the right thing. They're not sinful people, but they're not putting on Jesus Christ. They're not walking in the room and everybody knows automatically who the Jesus freak is. Who's the person that I need to watch out for, you know, if I'm not interested in spiritual things? You know, they, they hide it, they, they, they mask it, and thus what happens then is they find themselves being drawn in by the crowd of people that is into rioting and drunkenness. They find themselves being attracted to or seduced by those that are given to chambering and wantonness, getting a little close to that lifestyle. They find themselves being drawn in by, allured by strife and envying, wanting to attain, seeking to grow in their stature and earthly things. But when you put on Jesus Christ, when your colors are clear and you walk into a room and it is completely known that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, listen, no one's going to invite you to go to a club on Friday night. They just know better. I mean, if you're really living Christ, letting your light shine in front of men, it's not going to happen. You'll find yourself being pushed away from that lifestyle, not embraced by that type of person. You're not going to be given to it. You're not going to want to smear Christ by dragging him into an illicit relationship. And you're going to have a perspective that's on heavenly things, not on earthly things. So he says, put on Christ. Two things, keep eternity in view and put on Jesus Christ. Don't make provision for the flesh. I wonder as we close, if there's anyone here tonight that you find yourself bitter and angry at the government, indebted in sin and holding debt of sin in other people's lives, and living in a carnal way, in a way that doesn't please the Lord. I want you to know that only Jesus Christ within your life can give you the power and the ability to overcome these things. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And only Jesus Christ within your heart can give you that perspective concerning human government. He's the only one that can let you see past the policies and the politics into the spiritual strings that are attached to the deeds done on earth. Only Christ can give you that insight. Will you submit to Christ tonight? Are you indebted in sin? Or are you holding debt against someone else? On these two hang all the law and the prophets. Only Christ can give you the power to forgive. But I'll tell you, if you'll obey, if you'll let him do it, then healing can begin. Relationships can be restored. Life can be lived. Are you living carnally? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, he said that there would be those, some, that would say, the Lord delays his coming. That they would lose sight of the fact that we're living for eternity. The Lord delays His coming. The the Bible said that Jesus is coming all along. Thousands of years, everybody's thought Jesus is coming. The Lord delays His coming. Jesus said the automatic response to that is that you would begin to beat your fellow servants, that you'd be given to brutality, and to eat and to drink with the drunken, carnality. 
beware, beware. Don't lose sight of our hope of heaven, of what's coming, eternity. It's real. It's glorious. He's coming soon. Keep your perspective. He that hath this hope, John says, purifies himself, even as he is pure. Be ye holy, Peter exhorted the church, as he is holy, for without holiness no one will see the Lord. Weigh out the treasures. What are you living for? Let Christ be the ruler of your life. Know his love within your heart and live completely for him. You'll understand what life is all about. Father, we just thank you tonight for the word of God. We thank you for this great exhortation that Paul gives to us, challenging. And yet, Lord, we know it resonates in our heart that it's perfectly right. It's real. It's true. Please give us wisdom, Lord. We ask that you'd help us to not look at what's going on in the world today and be up in arms, bitter in our hearts, wanting to rebel and rescind. Help us to see, Lord, that it's satanic, that it's bigger, and that you're sovereign, more importantly. Help us, Lord. Father, we pray right now for those people that have hurt us, wounded us, even deeply, Lord, cut us in ways that will never be right. We pray that you give us the grace to, to let them free of that debt. Lord, if there's any that we have sinned against, I pray that you give us wisdom. Show us how we can seek penance, how we can maybe just say sorry. Give us wisdom, Lord. Help us, strengthen us. And Lord, where we've given in to carnality or the lusts of our flesh in any way, we pray that you give us victory, that we would see eternity as real, that you would help us to keep it in perspective, and that, Lord, we would live for that day. But please help us, Lord. We, we need you. We declare our dependence upon you. Thank you, Lord. Please fill us afresh with your spirit tonight as we go. And may we take this word with us. May it come back to us tomorrow. Lord, may it continue to speak to us and work on us and change us as we continue to walk with you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.